0: The passage that is before us today is one of those classic passages. In fact, if if we find ourselves at the summit of God's grace in Romans chapter 8, we may find ourselves at the very peak of that summit in a passage of scripture that is oftentimes the comfort for a weary soul. It many times is the salve that we need over some kind of a wrong, even a wound that has happened. And it's not saying that the wound or the wrong, the betrayal, the hardship, the difficulty, the loss, the sickness, the whatever. It's not saying that those things in themselves are all good and to be rejoiced in. It's simply bringing us back to the place that God is who he said he is He's an omnipotent, all-wise God who does all things well. If your Bibles are not there already, take them, if you would, and join me in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and in a few moments, we will begin reading in verse number 28. Now, when I was a kid, my mom kept, um, obviously, all the, the stuff that we would use for for kitchen stuff in a cabinet and, and as a little kid, I suspect probably seven or eight years old, she would sometimes pull this metal can down from the shelf and, and there was a round top on it. You'd take your spoon and pop that little round lid off this metal can and then you'd take a few scoops of that powdery, chocolatey goodness and mix it in a cup of milk and, and you had some instant chocolate milk. And, and I love grabbing that little metal can and pulling it down and taking the spoon and popping the little metal cap and mixing some, you know, a couple spoonfuls. And then if mom's not looking, a couple spoonfuls more and making it extra rich and thick and chocolate. Okay, so I really enjoyed mixing the chocolate milk. I don't know if you ever did this before or not, but I did it on more than one occasion. There is another can that is deceptively like the chocolate milk mix and apparently now I've never used it myself for baking because I don't really bake but but apparently my mom had this can of other kind of chocolate and I think it's just like straight cocoa it comes in the same metal can has the same round metal lid you'd take your spoon and pop it the same way and I did, I would pull the can down and it says Hershey's on the front of it. And I would mix it in and you know, you just can't wait and you mix it up and then you drink it and, and it's almost, you know, um, unedible. It's, it's so strong, so wrong, you know. And probably my mom is just watching laughing that I'm trying to get in the stuff, you know. Well, it makes great brownies from what I'm told. You can make chocolate pie or frostings or other wonderful desserts mixed in with other ingredients, but by itself, I suspect that nobody eats it alone. And God, in his wisdom, knows how to take the sometimes bitter parts of life and mix them with the ingredients of his choosing and some of the sweeter aspects of life and produce something that we all readily acknowledge as good, by themselves distasteful. We might even say bad, but put together in God's economy, it produces something that it could never actually accomplish apart from the elements that we oftentimes find even distasteful. The title of our message today is All Things Together for Good. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse number 28. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. You follow along if you would as I read. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, As we begin today, we ask the question, does God have a plan? And we answer that with a resounding absolutely. And in this wonderful passage of scripture, let's begin to break down that plan and try to see, even though it may be at times foggy or blurry, hard to fully realize, let's at least attempt to see a picture that needs in many ways, a distance to finally bring into focus. The first thing that we notice today in our passage is what we'll refer to as the confidence in his plan. The confidence in his plan. Notice again in your passage of scripture, how does this begin? He begins with, and we know. And we know. There's something absolute, there's something conclusive in the statement of this verse. There's no wiggle room, there's no uncertainty, there's no hesitation, there's no little out. Sometimes we give ourselves, well, you know, and we know, most all the time. Well, I am pretty sure, I have a good feeling about. He simply begins with, and we know. The other day I'm walking to my office, this was just a few days ago. I'm walking to my office and I look down and there is a a hallway where there are a lot of PCC students gathered. And so they're, they're there, many of them are sitting on benches, some are sitting on the floor, some are standing and you could tell there is quite a collection of students. So I just was curious, I'm interested. So I walked down and, and it didn't take long to figure out I said, hey, what are you guys doing? Even as I'm asking the question, I knew what was happening because they all had something out and it brought back memories, memories are flooding back into my mind. They all had out this metal ring, large metal ring And then they had these little tiny cards with a hole punch in the top corner, and they're all on this ring, and they're taking, and they're going through their cards, and what they're doing is they're going over their Greek words, and it brought back sweat on my forehead, actually. So they're going over their Greek words and they're studying. I said, what do you guys got going? They said, we got a big test coming. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll leave you alone. But man, they are studying and, and it was just fun to watch because I'm, I'm leaving and I don't have to you know, take the test. <laughs> One of the first words that you learn in first year Greek is, is the word that we translate into the English as no. No, it's the word gnosko. It is one of those words that you learn to to say and to parse. It was Elizabeth Barrett Browning that wrote the lines, how do I love thee, let me count the ways. What she's saying is really what the word gnosko is saying. Let me rehearse in my mind all the experiential ways that I know, how do I love thee, let me count the ways. There are so many experiences, so many actions that say, I know of this love. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.10, that I may gnosko, that I may know him. This word is so personal, it's so intimate, that when the Bible begins to unfold the story of Mary and Joseph, and the child that Mary conceives, the word gnosko is so intimate and so personal that the Bible records in Matthew 1 25 and he knew her not he knew her not until she had brought forth the firstborn son this is a word that that speaks of intimacy it speaks of knowledge from some shared experience it is a very powerful word that is gnosko knowing it is not the word that is used in Romans 8 28 you say, well, why, why doesn't God use? And we know, like I have all of this experience. I have all this feeling. I have all of this internalized that I know. I think he doesn't use the word gnosko because sometimes our feelings are so far removed from knowing that God has in fact done something good. And, and confusion seems to cloud our mind. And uncertainty And and I I thought there were some things I knew about God. In fact, I remember the day of my conversion. I remember what happened, the feelings that washed over me. And now I even begin to wonder my salvation. I've been taught to sing, God is so good. But in times like this, I wonder of his goodness. Is this in fact good? And so God, the Holy Spirit, moves the hand and the mind of the Apostle Paul to use a different word. It's the word Ido. It's not Gnosko, it's not this experiential knowledge. It's really connected to what we might call propositional truth. It has set out the proposition so that we can determine, is this in fact true? He is saying, let us just consider the facts regarding God. There are some things that just add up. I can look at two plus two and see the equation and know the conclusion. I don't have to experience it. I don't have to be a part of the equation. I can just look at the facts and I can draw a conclusion. And the Apostle Paul says, stop trying to determine in the midst of hardship, the goodness of God. You come to a conclusion about the goodness of God as something that we know. This is a done deal. And when I start with the right truth, I'm going to end with the right conclusion. And we know. I remember years ago, I heard a story of a a dad and his kids on the mission field. And one of his children was out playing out in an area behind their home And the dad came out and he's watching the child play. They're under the shade of a tree. And as they're playing, you know, everything is kind of unfolding and the dad's just kind of sitting back and enjoying and the child playing and the dad looks and and he simply makes a command, an utterance to the child. And he said, lay down on the ground. And the child does, and they do so with some, some smile, like dad's playing a game. And, and so they do so right away, and they look at dad and a little grin on their face, and he says, crawl toward me. And the child does, and now a quizzical look, like, well, what, what's going on? And he says, now stand and walk directly toward me. And again, the child does, and as the child approaches, the dad takes the child and envelops the child in his arms. And then he turns the child and he shows the child the place where they were playing. And there was a venomous snake that was hanging down from the tree approaching the child. So the child doesn't understand the commands of the father. The child simply obeys. There is something about and we know Well, I don't know all the circumstances. I don't know why God's doing this. I don't know why he's saying this. I don't know why he's leading me through this. I just know God. And a child couldn't have fully understood why a father says, do this, do this, do this. There is something about our limited vantage point that hinders us from seeing that which God sees. I may not know the whole story. I just know the one who does know the whole story. Think about all the things that we don't know. Matthew chapter 25 verse 13, it says, we don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. Genesis 27 too, the old patriarch, the old patriarch Isaac said, I know not the day of my death. We don't know that. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Proverbs 27, one, thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Just two verses prior to our text, we read in verse number 26, that we don't even know how to pray as we ought. So what do we know? We know that God is good. We know that God has a plan. We know that God is omnipotent and sovereign. Therefore, we know that his good plan will not be thwarted. It will be carried out. It will be accomplished. And we are a part of that good plan. One Greek scholar said, you could, you could read these Greek words this way. He said, we could read it as, and we know with an absolute knowledge. Nothing changing. No variableness. Neither shadow. No inkling of turning. No Not absolute knowledge in all things, but a knowledge that is absolutely settled on the goodness of our God. So we begin with a confidence in God's plan. Where do we go from there? Well, notice the comprehensiveness of his plan. This is not just a plan. Well, I'm really confident. This is a comprehensive plan. What does it include? Well, Well, notice the next phrase of Scripture. And we know that all things... And we know that all things. Now you may do this, I do this. And I I like to look up the meaning of words because so often you find this um, treasure trove of insight. And this word is one of those words that when you begin to look it up and understand, it's remarkable. If you write things down, you may wanna take note of this, all in the Greek. The word all in Greek it actually means all in the Greek, okay? So when you, when you start to read, and we know that all things, we do look for the asterisk. We wanna know, well, what are the exceptions to the all things? Because, because I, I mean, clearly there are some things that are not good. To be clear, we are not saying that all things are good. How many times has Romans eight twenty eight been used in such inappropriate ways? All things, all the individual things, is human trafficking good? No, it is not. Cancer is not good. Suicide, the death of a child, hurtful words, divorce or abandonment, hateful people, cruel actions, Betrayal, pain and suffering, sexual abuse. We could go on and on and on. And we are striving to be clear in saying that when we start to, to individualize and set some things apart and say, well, well, that thing must be good, right? Clearly the Bible is not saying that, that all of these things are good. God is saying that he is using all things. Sometimes that's hard for us to, to accept, to receive, to swallow. It's challenging for us to say, I know, but man, you just mentioned some things that are so bad. They're so, what we, what we might refer to as despicable. These are terrible things. All things together. All things together together that even some of these harsh realities of a broken, fallen, sinful world, God in his omnipotent sovereignty can take even these things and work them together into something that he calls good. One commentary said it this way, all things is utterly comprehensive, having no qualifications or limits, Neither this verse nor its context allows for any restrictions or conditions. All things is inclusive in the fullest possible sense. Some may immediately begin to argue, but there are things that have happened in my life that have been hurtful, deeply hurtful. We might even say harmful, wrong, to the greatest degree. We should note that Paul is not saying That God prevents his children from experiencing things that can even do harm to them. He is rather giving testimony to the fact that the Lord takes all that he allows to happen to his children, even the worst things, and turns those things ultimately into blessings. If all things didn't mean exactly what it says, how could you determine what was beneficial or not? Is it only those things that bring us comfort or pleasure or gain or health or success or ease? Or are those things the final measure of God's good plan? Are those the only things that we consider to be good? Instead, we should see our suffering, our loss, our pain, our sickness, even our failures as part of the all things that God is using for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. We see the confidence in his plan. We see there is a continuity of his plan, all things. There's no random unnecessary part. As we go a little bit further, we start to see the continuity of his plan the continuity of his plan. Yeah, well, I have confidence. I, I see it is a comprehensive plan, but I see the continuity of this plan. And we know that all things work together. The, the word used here in the Greek is synergeo, synergeo, all things together, synergeo. It's the word that we get our English word synergy from. The uh, Oxford English Dictionary defines synergy as the interaction or cooperation of two or more agents to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. He's saying, hey, listen, you take this all by itself, it's not going to produce what it can produce if you put this with this and maybe this with this and this. and and these things, and these things, and you put all of those together, and you begin to produce something that any one of those could never produce on their own. And God, who does all things well, sees even those harsh realities of life, those things that this side of eternity, quite frankly, we may have no answer for. And God begins to weave those together in such a way that it is for our ultimate good and his great glory. If you pause for a moment and just started to think in your mind about a great shipyard where these massive ocean-faring vessels are constructed, we would see that there are these massive sheets of metal Any one of those cast into the ocean sinks immediately to the ocean floor. But what a wise shipbuilder begins to do is to take these things that could never stand isolated on their own. that They would never sail. They would never float. In fact, any person holding on to that alone goes with it to its watery grave. But the shipbuilder The one who has the plan, the one who sees how all of these things are constructed, begins to hammer and to chisel and through heat and labor, begins to forge together these metal sheets in such a way that an ocean-faring vessel is constructed. And how any one of those things could never navigate the great waters, those things together now can actually float above that which would otherwise consume it. We are not looking at the individual aspects of our lives. We're saying, God, I don't understand why that's important. I don't know why you're doing that in my life right now. But I do know that you have unrolled before you a plan that is something hidden to me, but known to you. And I will trust your good hand as it welds those sheets of metal, so to speak, together. How many of you ever put models together when you were a kid? How many of you ever put models? Lots of you did. How many of you ever skipped a few steps in the process? Did you ever do that? Did you ever just glue the hood on the car? You know, I mean, you're going through, it's like, I don't know, glue the hood on the car, you know, but you never finished the model. Did you ever skip ahead to something because you thought that doesn't make sense right there? Only to lament a few steps down the road that, oh, I should have done what the directions said right when it said it. There's something about a person who sees the end from the beginning and knows what necessary steps must be a part of our lives, his plan to produce something that is the image of Jesus Christ formed in us. There are no useless random or even unnecessary events in our lives, that God is not able to produce something of greater value than could be produced without them, nothing. In his book, Why Us? The author states that God proves his sovereignty, not by intervening constantly and preventing these events, but by ruling and overruling them so that even tragedies end up accomplishing his ultimate purposes. Again, this does not mean that God is the author of evil. Let me be clear and let me say that again. This does not mean that God is the author of evil. It does mean that he can redeem even the evil and repurpose it for his glory. Further, it doesn't mean that we stay in abusive or sinful circumstances. It does mean that God takes even the evil intentions of others and uses it for purposes, including our good and his glory. I mean, we have these classic examples throughout scripture. We have a guy whose name is Joseph that was used and abused repeatedly. He's lied about, he is placed in circumstances that were not the result of his own making. And yet Joseph's conclusion about the whole matter as his betrayers stand in front of him is, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. What he's acknowledging is, listen, you don't get a pass on the wrong, you did wrong, but not God. God took even your evil and redeemed it for purposes better than your intentions. You think about a guy whose name is Jacob. Jacob, you know, he, he is, he's this woe is me. Everything's always broken. Everything's always wrong. Joseph's father. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, me, have you bereaved of my children? Joseph is not. Simeon is not. And ye will take Benjamin away. And then he says this. He says, all these things are against me. Jacob had no idea how close he was to having the answers that he sought. But instead of looking to God and saying, God, you must have a plan, he's looking at his circumstances and his eyes stop there. Our ultimate example, of course, is Jesus. Was the death of Christ a part of the perfect, eternal, unchangeable plan of God? And the answer is absolutely. Does that mean that the sin that brought him there was blessed by God? And the answer is absolutely not. In Mark chapter 14, verse 21, the Bible says, The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. The the evil that another person does, doesn't get this pass because God's using it for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. A person who's doing wrong will certainly answer for the wrong, but you don't have to wallow in this world of victimization because someone has done wrong to me. God in his goodness can say, listen, even in that hardship, James goes so far he says, my brethren, count it all joy. Now, if you're thinking about count it all joy, there must be something really good in store. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, various trials. Well, James, why in the world should we do that? Why would a person count it all joy? Like, hey, this is really good. Count it all joy when they fall into various trials, these, these, these diverse temptations. Why? Because, James says, the trying of your faith, it's through the the hardships of your faith, through the trying of your faith, it worketh patience. That means you're now being stabilized. Your roots are going deep into the soil of your faith. You are now developing the ability to stand. God knows what he's doing even in the wrongs another may be doing to you. It's quite remarkable how God takes the, the ill intentions, the wrong will of man and can weave that together in ways that are quite profound. Johnny Erickson Tata was at a very young age through a diving accident. She became a quadriplegic. She's been in in a chair, unable to use her limbs for, I suppose, some 50 years. She oftentimes has said this when thinking about the hardships that take place. She said, God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. And how oftentimes he will weave together the sorrow, the sadness, even the sin of this life to bring about something that is ultimately beautiful and part of his grand plan. We see the confidence in his plan, the comprehensiveness of his plan, the continuity of his plan. Look at how this kind of culminates, this, this culmination of his plan. And we know that all things work together for good. We've been playing that chord and, and, and strumming that song for a while, but pause and think just a little bit further about how these things work together actually for good. How comforting it is to know this truth that God is in control. He's working all things together, both the good and the bad. The things that we find pleasant, the things we find, find painful, all things working together for good. If you don't realize this, you begin to see events as isolated rather than a part of a grand story. And further, you look at life as if God is not sovereign and he must not be omnipotent, not truly in control, not able to bring about what he promised he would do. Yes, he began something in you, but is he truly able to complete it? With that, we begin to wonder we, we, we start to second guess Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever been involved in any kind of construction project, any kind of remodeling, but anytime there is construction that's taking place, things do get messy. And usually really messy. The bigger the project Quite frankly, the bigger the mess. Things have to be cleared. Mud is the the, the day in, day out product of the work that's taking place. Sometimes harsh tools are used, even blasting at times. And, And then different tradesmen come in and all these different sets of skills and they begin to hammer and chisel and pound and through great effort, through fire, through trial, through difficulty something begins to take shape, but still a lot of mess. Do you know the confidence that we have, the the culmination of this plan, is that there is this grand construction project that God is is undertaking. And you and I are a part of this, this larger picture. Oh, I know that there's a construction project for us, and then we're part of something far larger. It's as if God has erected a sign that says, God at work. Things may seem messy, but this is God's construction zone. And while the project may appear mysterious at times, we know that God is at work. And what he began, we are confident he is able to complete. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. We have confidence in his plan. We see the comprehensiveness of his plan, the continuity of his plan, the culmination of his plan. And, and unless you find some, I don't know, maybe he's trying to, to, to pull something over on us. What are the conditions of the plan? There are some, and I am wonderfully encouraged that, that so many in this room qualify for the condition. The Bible says it this way, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now pause for just a moment because at times we might get a little nervous like, oh wow, I'm not being silly about this and I'm not asking you to respond. So don't raise your hand, but can you imagine if, if I asked today, how many of you love God enough Raise your hand. Well, who would would be so bold, so brazen to say, I love God enough? Yeah, I don't need to love him anymore because I I love him enough. Who here who truly loves God doesn't say, I I wish I loved him more? Oh, that I might know you more. That my love might continue to grow for you more and more. Who here doesn't say, Lord, I do love you. How frustrating, maybe even internally, uh, this battle that's taking place when Jesus asked Peter, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, I love you. And he's asked again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Yes, I love you. And he asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Almost as if he questions himself. He says, thou knowest. So sometimes we come to this little caveat in Romans eight twenty eight, and we start to wonder, wow, I, I, I guess I might not get the all things work together for good to them that love God because I don't know if I love him enough. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, no, 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 don't, don't put the, the love enough. Do you love God? And guess who it is that loves God? The, the called, those who, those who have his name those who have passed from death to life, those who are the saved, those who are the children of God. Let let me ask you this, have you ever loved your family before, even when there's a little bit of tension between you? Have you ever had this sense of, no, I love my family, I just don't like them right now, okay? Do you know what we understand? We understand, no, 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 no. I'm I'm part of a family. And so there is a familial love. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, hey, listen, don't overthink this. He's saying, do you know Jesus Christ? Yes. He's the one who died in my place. I I love him because he first loved me. Then, Then you are a part of those who have met the condition for this plan. You know, as we... As we start to just wrap this up, there's one last thing that is ultimately mentioned and that is the conformity of his plan. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, here's what he's saying, This is what you are saved for. This is the end of the story. Listen, let me turn you to the last chapter of the book. Start to run your finger down the last page, the last paragraph, the last sentence, the last line. This is the end of the story. This is the reason for which you are created. And that is you are predestinated to what end? To, to look like Jesus Christ, to be conformed to the image of his son. The last verse in, in our text is verse number 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. You have been called, justified and someday ultimately, finally, glorified and the work of conforming you to the image of Christ will be complete. That is the grand story of God and what an incredible privilege for people like you and me to be a part. My wife likes to put puzzles together. I, I am, I'm good for about four pieces and they have little corners on them, okay? <laughs> she is somewhat predictable with, with puzzles, and maybe if you like puzzles, you are as well. She always, um, she always frames it first. She always does the frame first, the whole frame. And then for hard puzzles, and she likes hard puzzles, she starts to separate pieces with subtle identifiers. It could be the easier colors, so she's gonna do that, but sometimes it's just these subtle inklings of some mark. When it's really difficult, she, she will start to separate them by the shape of the piece. Do you know, when you have the frame and you know, I don't know where all these pieces fit, but I know they all fit inside that frame then you know if you keep, keep faithfully putting pieces in their place, it's going to create a finished picture. Do you know what you and I have to do? We have to start with the frame of God's love. For God so loved the world. God, I don't understand all these pieces, and I don't, I don't want this piece to go inside that frame. But God, that's not up to me. I trust you, you are creating a picture and I haven't been given the top of the box. Lord, I don't know what this is all gonna look like other than final glorification. I know that ultimately it's gonna look like, Jesus, I just don't know how this all goes together. Canvas Church, can I encourage you, start with the frame, the frame of God's love and know that every piece God has selected in your life that's going to look like Jesus Christ is a necessary component of the whole big picture that will finally result in, even though at times it's hard for us to see, it will ultimately say that all these things are working together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose."